Hey everyone, welcome to Gods of Eden. Today's guest is Jenny Arda. I was introduced to Jenny through her podcast, which she co-hosts with her friend Izzy, which is called Untangled. Untangled is where Jenny and Izzy discuss the tangled messes in their mind and they open up the conversation around mental health. It's a podcast that I was immediately hooked on. I loved what they built and I loved it so much that I actually got to be a part of it as the season finale, which I really enjoyed. And I've spoken to them both before and said how much I love the fact that they hold a space for a really nuanced conversation of mental health. And an example that it doesn't have to be the extreme case of everything when it comes to the conversation of mental health. So love what they built. And I was really, really fortunate to have this conversation with Jenny. I say it at the end of the episode, I absolutely love speaking to Jenny. She's a lot of fun. She provides a phenomenal insight and perspective around being someone that discusses mental health whilst also working in the field as well. We talk about her own experiences with depression and other mental health battles alongside just her journey as a whole. Once again, it's a conversation I really enjoyed. I have a tremendous respect for Jenny, a tremendous respect for Izzy as well and what they both combined on in terms of Untangled. And yeah, this is just a conversation I really loved and you can find Untangled in the show notes, so please go check it out. I cannot recommend the podcast enough. And if you are listening to this on Apple, please leave a rating and a review. Please subscribe. And yeah, just check out what check out what Jenny's got going on because once again, I just cannot speak highly enough for everything that she's built. But without further ado, here's the episode. Three, two, one, let's go. Hey, Jenny, how are you? Hey, I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Right, question number one. I have a Spotify playlist, which is the Guards of Eden soundtrack, and each guest has a song on there. So for the first question, can you give us a song that either makes you happy or reminds you of a really positive memory? It's quite a hard question for me because um, I'm a bit of a downer when it comes to music. I really like Same here. like depressing music. <laughs> um, and I don't know what this says about me, but a lot of the music that I feel has kind of defined moments in my life have been quite sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think... Um, I went through a really big Jason Mraz phase. Ooh. Um, I don't think I've come out of it really, but I, <laughs> I, I went through a bit of an obsessive Jason Mraz phase. Um, I had like 64 of his songs on my on my iPod when I was younger um, and nobody else had that many songs on my iPod. Um, and I think that I'm going to join the Club of the Thousands and say I'm Yours by Jason oh, Mraz. I love it. Yeah, I just I have I, whenever I listen to that song, I just have that a feeling, um, a really nice, warm feeling. And I think mm. it came out around I was probably around sixteen. Yeah, I don't really remember, but um, I always think of some of the happiest moments in my life were when I was about sixteen, seventeen. Oh. Um, so anything, any music that was around that time, I sort of get a little bit of a warm, fuzzy feeling. Oh, I love that. That's such a great song to add. I really, I love that song. I think anybody in in our age range does, I feel like it's such a great song. Yeah. And I have to get over this thing that I have that if everybody else loves it, I then immediately think, oh, well, I can't like it. 
<laughs> so I have to get over that because I, I have to I keep reminding myself oh well you know I knew Jason Mraz before he was right <laughs> before he was popular <laughs> well that is going to live on the Gods of Eden soundtrack playlist which is on Good. Spotify and lives in the show notes and it's a fantastic addition so Jenny let's start from the beginning how do you remember your childhood growing up fairly happy generally um very busy though mm-hmm. um i i feel like i i was i'm i've had quite a privileged childhood i had quite a lucky upbringing both my parents were together and still are together um and were a very good example of a of a loving relationship and a very secure relationship as well i know ne- i never had to worry about that i never had to worry about my parents being um angry with each other or upset or um even particularly upset with me which was nice um but then I realized recently that actually most of my memories of my childhood are are very school-based um and I had a lot of homework a lot of the time so when I think back to generally my childhood it is filled with a lot of work and a lot of um not pressure from my parents, but pressure from school and internalized pressure as well. I was very, very hard on myself. So a lot of my memories are built up on on that idea of having to do well based on what school asked of me. Mm. Um, but yeah, generally home life was was really nice. It was lovely. Yeah, that's such nice a nice upbringing. That's so interesting, like the internal pressure thing, because I think I was maybe the same. I never had parents that were like oh that's not good enough or I had tough parents but I didn't have yeah my parents were ne- they never made me feel like low self-worth but mm-hmm. this idea of like internal pressure I like really felt it it's such a strange yeah. it's such a strange thing because it almost feels hard to explain I think so too and, and for a really long time in my sort of early adulthood years when I was still struggling mm-hmm. with that um, it almost felt like I shouldn't be feeling like that. And yeah. I, I felt bad for feeling that way because it implied that that my parents may have done that to me. Mm. Um, and that just wasn't the case at all. But I think people underestimate the impact that school has. We spend such a long time at school that it almost has equal, if not more, impact on the way that we see the world mm. than our family life does sometimes. Well, you're spending so much time there, aren't you? Mm. That you don't, which you don't, you don't process how how much time you're in school until you kind of left and have detached from the bubble of it all. I feel like, yeah, definitely. And I think there was quite a long time after school ended that I felt a little bit lost because I'd spent so much of my time focused on school or at school mm. um, that even when I got to uni, I was like, "What's all this free time?" Yeah. What, what, what am I meant to do with all of this time that I have I should be working and that and that led to a whole other different feeling but um but is it's just I think generally led me to feel quite anxious with being not busy yeah um and I've spoken to other people who went to the same school as me and they have a similar feeling that they feel weird when they're not busy yeah yeah but one thing that you did have that wasn't all school 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 was that you were quite talented musically from what I saw. (laughs) You said that, I didn't. (laughs) Um, But I love it though. So 
was it something that you just kind of grew up with that you were fairly musical? And I do have a silly question, which I'm going to slide in there, which is naturally anybody that's done anything musically, especially singing based, the natural thing now that we're grown adults is karaoke. So (laughs) post pandemic world, you go out and there's karaoke, maybe drinking something along those, maybe drinking, you know, we'll keep it PC in that way. (laughs) <laughs> but you you get this sudden urge to jump on karaoke. What would be one song that you would pick now if you were going to do karaoke now? I mean, I always have the urge to jump on karaoke. I love it's it. Not usually a sudden thing. It's just a <laughs> continual thing at the back of my head. <laughs> I mean, I've got, I got a microphone in front of me now. It's quite yeah. difficult for me not to just launch into Wicked. But yeah. anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll go with your first bit first. Yeah. Um, so, no, I don't. I don't view music or creativity generally as something that was kind of inherently part of my upbringing mm-hmm. or part of my household. Um, I actually, when I think of of my upbringing that way, it's it's much more of like a, a logical household than anything yeah, else. Yeah. I mean, my my dad is a very very logical, clear headed rational person and I think I've picked up on a a lot of my traits from him Mm -hmm. um but then I do also have the creative side which he doesn't (laughs) he doesn't quite get but um so no I think that music was something that I I chose to to do more than something that came to me um I I first decided to to play an instrument because we we basically had a, an assembly at school where these these people came in and they just had a a, a whole stage full of musical instruments mm-hmm. and they introdu- introduced all of us to each one of them and they described what it was and how it sounded. They played them and they showed us uh, what it was like. And then at the end, they basically encouraged us to learn a musical instrument because it was really good for us. I think I, I was about 10 at the time, I think. Yeah. And I really liked the sound of a saxophone. Of course. So yeah, who doesn't? So uh, so I, I went home and I asked my parents, can I play the saxophone, please? Um, and they had a think about it and then we're like, yeah, sure. Um, and I was very, very lucky to be able to have lessons with an absolute legend. Mm. Um, his name was Neil Carter and he he used to play uh, guitar and keyboard for um, the U- for UFO, Wild Horses, oh. Gary Moore. Yeah, um, He was a proper... Uh, rock star basically Um, and he taught me saxophone for absolute years Um, I did I did get to grade six but I mean you wouldn't know that if you heard (laughs) me play (laughs) I basically just carried on going to lessons to talk to Mr Carter um, rather than to play the saxophone (laughs) Um, yeah I did and also it got me out of lessons sometimes yeah so um so it was quite a nice break um, and a good creative outlet. And sorry, Mr. Carter, I really didn't practice very much. Um, <laughs> but I was in the band and I liked that. And yeah, I just I liked the sound of people coming together and making music. Mm. And then singing wise, um, uh, because let's be honest, saxophone is just something I did to to get out of lessons. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, singing wise, I... I don't remember when I first decided that it was a good idea to be in choir, but mm. um, I was always in choirs. Yeah. Um, 
right from a really early age, probably around the same age, uh, nine or 10 years old, there was always a school choir. So I decided to to join that. And at that point, I think most people were in the choir anyway. And then as the years went on, people sort of dropped out as they decided they really didn't like singing or they couldn't sing. (laughs) Luckily, I can hold a tune, so it worked out all right. Um, but I did just, I really enjoyed just singing along to to things. And to be honest, I didn't for a long time think about whether I was good or not. It was yeah. just that I really liked expressing how I felt in in song. Mm. And yeah, so I just carried on. I, I carried on in choirs and there was no, no one year that I wasn't performing in at least one choir. At one point wow. I was in three different choirs until a level mm. um and then i did i did drop out i did stop um because they got too much basically they um at school they were asking us to be there on saturdays and after schools and at lunchtime as well so i decided to to give it up mm. i really wish i hadn't um mm. because then when i went to university i tried desperately to look for a choir but didn't really find one that suited me and i haven't really found one since then that I feel is as good as the ones that I was part of uh, with school. Yeah. Um, oh, and then your karaoke question. Yeah. So I absolutely love karaoke. <laughs> uh, I went, <laughs> I went um, a couple of years ago when we could uh, yeah. for my birthday, I, oh. me and my friends all went to, uh, you know, the pods that you can, yeah. you can rent out like a room. And we did that and we had a lot of champagne. Um, and I put together a playlist beforehand of all like my favorite karaoke songs. I love and it. we just we went through that playlist. And luckily everyone liked my playlist. So that was <laughs> fine. Um, but I'm, I'm gonna go with something really embarrassing and say I'd probably my go-to would be something like Kelly Clarkson. Oh, I like um, it. I think that Kelly Clarkson is really underrated. Yep. Um, I know she wasn't underrated at the time, but yeah. I think she should go down in history as <laughs> one of the best pop, female pop icons ever. Um, and she's really like powerful feminist as well. If you listen yep. to her music, uh, her lyrics are really, really powerful. So I, I grew up listening to Kelly Clarkson and Pink, both yeah. powerful women. Um, so it'd probably be one of those or or a musical number because yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't help myself. What for- <laughs> What film was the Kelly Clark uh, the Since You've Been Gone? Was it? Oh, Pitch Perfect. Yes, which I'm a big fan yeah. of and got no shame about it. Um, oh, yeah. If my life could be Pitch Perfect, <laughs> I'd, I'd be very happy with that. I very often say that if my life was a musical, I'd be, I'd be very pleased. Oh, that is so <laughs> nice. So I'm glad I got karaoke and I'm glad Kelly Clarkson got the love that she deserved because don't talk about her <laughs> enough on Guards of Eden, so... No, um, I think people don't talk about her enough generally. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm glad we have. <laughs> um projecting like forward a bit more. You studied psychology as a part of your A levels. Did mm-hmm. because of naturally now which massive spoiler alert you work in mental health. Um mm-hmm. did you have an inclination when you were studying at A level that you were like this there's a real possibility that this is the kind of career I want to go into post college well post-college and post-university uh no really not really to be honest um I psychology was only an option at a level you couldn't do it before at my school so it was when I was choosing my a levels and I went to like an introduction day 
for psychology. Mm -hmm. I I remember coming away being like, wow, that is definitely the subject for me. I really, really love it. It was just me in a box. And my mom said the same thing. She was like, wow, this is made for you. Definitely. You should do psychology. And so I really enjoyed it. And I, it was definitely the subject that I thought, um, that I felt most kind of interested in. And I was probably, was probably the one I was best at as well. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, at the time, I, well, firstly, I, I was quite hesitant about going to university generally anyway. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of pressure from my school to go to the top universities. Um, and I remember being sat down by my house tutor at one point and, um, and she, she asked me why the hell I wasn't applying to Oxford and Cambridge wow. um, and basically suggested that nothing else was good enough. Um and uh, I remember feeling very, very angry about that. Mm. I'm basically saying to her, like, look, I, I, I don't want to go anywhere that I'm going to be pressured as much as I've been pressured here. Yeah. Um, and I just want to kind of get on with my life now. And I, yeah, I didn't really want to go to university, but, um, but it was, it was sort of a, a given that you had to. Yeah. Um, and also, I was in the year that was the last year before the fees were going up. Same as me. Yeah. So, um, so it kind of didn't feel like a choice. It was yeah. like either I go to university now or I never go to university. Um, and we were given that whole rhetoric about how if you don't go to university, then you'll never get anywhere in life. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so it was a bit scary not to. So yeah. I did, but actually I wanted to do advertising. Oh. And I thought I was good at writing. I really liked psychology. And I thought that was a really good combination of both of those things. I also really love photography. So I actually at first was desperately trying to find a course that was advertising with photography Ah. Um, or like some sort of marketing thing that were creative marketing, creative advertising, things like that. Um, And I did go to a couple of universities that did that, but it was quite, quite far reaching. You couldn't Mm. really get very many universities that did that. Yeah. Um, And and if I did, I think the only one I went to that I enjoyed was Lincoln and it was so far away. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, but then I then I thought, oh, maybe I'll do psychology and photography. Basically, I really didn't want to lose the creativeness. I didn't want to yeah. lose the photography part. Um, but the only university that did photography and, and psychology was Aberystwyth. Wow, okay. Um, yeah. In Wales. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, okay, maybe not that. Um so so yeah, I went I went into that, but it was more I view psychology. Uh, as an A-level and also as a degree really as more of a door opener for me to multiple paths than, than it was like a career direction. Um, yeah. So I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't think about going into mental health until um, my third year right. of, of university. And even at that point, it felt like a very far-fetched thing that possibly would never happen. Yeah. Um, how did you find that transition to Southampton when you went to university? practically the transition I found it absolutely fine um I didn't mind being away from home Mm -hmm. um I didn't mind being away from my parents Uh, I remember having a conversation with my sister um a couple of days before I went to uni Mm -hmm. and uh, she's five years older than me so she had Uh. um either just just graduated or was graduating at the time and she uh, she said oh how, how are you feeling about it are you are you worried about anything and I remember saying, oh, I'm, I'm a bit worried about not liking, um, not liking the course or mm. maybe struggling a bit, um, a bit with it, but, um, but no, I'm not worried about anything else. And I think back to that conversation a lot because 
because uh, it was so opposite to what I should have been worried about. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I could, if I could go back in time and and tell myself anything, it probably would be to prepare for maybe be a little bit more worried about the other stuff. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Than than the uh, the academics of things, but so no, I didn't find the um, the practical transition was fine. I was used to sort of going to city. Like I don't really view Southampton as a as a massively big city, so it was quite it was quite it was fine to um to navigate and manage. But emotionally, um, it was really tough. But again, that only that caught up with me after I realised that my expectations perhaps weren't being met um, and probably wouldn't be met um I had I was very very lucky at school to have a really good group of friends Mm. um and I was surrounded by people who I viewed as similar to me and uh, yeah we had problems with people with bullying and things but people weren't generally horrible to me Mm. which was nice and so when I went to university I think I expected it to be the same yeah um, I expected to find my group of people. I expected to have, perhaps unrealistically, a very close knit group of friends because that's what I'd had all my life, and and I'd always um, had a small group of very close friends rather than lots of acquaintances. I'm sure. not very good with acquaintances. I either have very close relationships or nothing at all, really. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I was, I was quite taken aback by people not wanting to have those close relationships or sure. just me finding it hard to find the people who were like me. Mm. Also having grown up in in Brighton, I was very, I don't know, it's a very liberal city. It's very yeah. free. Um, people are all very accepting of, of everything and anything. And so I, I'd never really thought about things like judging people for what they liked or didn't like or, sure. or who they were or what they looked like, all of those things. Of course, there's a certain amount of bias generally in human beings, but I just, I'd never really come across that very much. Mm. And so I was really surprised when I went to Southampton by seeming judgments um, about a kind of individuality in Southampton. So I don't know whether there's something that you found at all, but uh, it was less liberal than than Brighton Um, and like for instance, anytime I went to any kind of party, anytime I said that I was from Brighton, I was always asked if I'm gay. <laughs> and I just thought, what? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I just remember being every single time I went to a social event in that first sort of couple of weeks, I just remember coming away every time and being confused. Yeah. yeah. Just being like, why, why are people asking me these questions that seem so irrelevant? Yeah. Um, and I ended up having to defend myself a lot for going to a private school. Mm. Um, and so I just felt very attacked a lot. I yeah. felt like I had to be on the defense a lot with who I was when, and that's something I, I hadn't experienced before. Yeah. Um, so yeah, practically it was absolutely fine. Uh, emotionally, not so much. Yeah. I, um, so I had a, I got to the same destination, but in terms of that conclusion, but from an emotionally different place, I think. So I was raised just outside of Southwest London. So, and I was very embracive of like the London mentality. I still kind of am, but it's almost like a, it's almost like an unconscious, I don't even want to say elitism, but it's this idea of like, well, I'm from London. So this is how I am. And you kind of 
you've yeah. got to work your you've got to mold yourself around me yeah it's a, very, it's a proud it, mentality I yeah guess. it's like a very strange mentality but so when I got down to Southampton I thought oh well there's gonna be loads of like Londoners coming for uni and I was the only person that was like remotely London-ish in my flat mm. so like whether it was lingo whether it was just attitude general kind of you know I, like we all had like in we all just all grew up all of our mates just like grew up having fun cracking jokes like all these different things and yeah it was this idea of like everyone was like oh yeah this guy's proper London da, 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 da. and I was like mm. immediately well turned off about it at, at university and then it was like a re- yeah I had a real challenge with the transition I think it's a very like I loved my time in Southampton but yeah it was just a city that was so so different to what I had kind of been acclimated to growing up Hmm. I'm I'm kind of glad it wasn't just me because um, yeah. I think most of the people I went to university with really really liked Southampton. Yeah. Um, and they didn't have they didn't have quite the same experience as me. And and you know I'm I'm aware that a lot of people absolutely love going to university, and I'm sure most people, a lot of people love Southampton. I have nothing against Southampton as a city, and I have nothing against Southampton as as a university, but. Um, but my experience was not a good one. And yeah. if I could go back, I wouldn't go yeah. uh, to to Southampton. Yeah, outside of my friends and kind of being an adult, because I needed that, like moving away and actually kind of learning to be a bit of an adult, I think. Yeah, you've spoken about those mental health battles. And it. I had had a, a slight kind of experience with depression in my second year of um, sixth form. But I feel like it definitely the harder the hardest episodes I've had with depression were at my time at university, mm. and I was wondering if you could speak to, I guess, trying to find coping techniques whilst you're a student because, for me anyway, the coping techniques they weren't great. It was drinking more. It was it was this idea of like breaking my body before I could lose my mind. Um, yeah. So. How did you find finding coping techniques, uh, coping techniques even, when you were at university where the environment isn't conducive to finding healthy kind mm. of ways of coping? Um, and kind of how has that changed now if you have a low period now? What are like big changes between during as a student and maybe now, Jenny, the grown woman that you are now? <laughs> Yeah, I, that's a it's a good good point actually that university really doesn't encourage helpful coping strategies, does it? Um, so I guess why well, I, if there's anyone listening that hasn't listened to Untangled, um, they yeah. probably won't know that uh, I have suffered with depression. Yeah. So I guess put that as the context. Yeah. But um, yeah, I did. I developed depression in hindsight very quickly mm. um, into my first year of university, um, but I didn't. I didn't name it as that until very late on in second year, mm-hmm. um, if not sort of beginning of third year. So in answer to your question, I guess coping strategies wise, um, when I, so I've spoken about the fact that I felt quite isolated mm-hmm. um, and quite ostracized as well at times at university. And I think unfortunately with the, with the mindset that I had at that time, I took that as a sign that, there was something wrong with me mm. rather than other people 
um, perhaps not being very nice or it just being the circumstances or, you know, all of the external factors that I might attribute it to now, I yeah, definitely took it as, right, there's something wrong with me then. That means I need to change or I need to do something to make people like me. Yeah, I've always had a thing about wanting people to like me anyway. I think that's a natural human thing, but equally I was, I've always been an overthinker and I've always liked people liking me and, and close relationships, as I said, has always been a really big thing for me. Mm. So when I suddenly didn't have those close relationships uh, on top of getting messages constantly that there was something wrong with me, mm. to be honest, my main coping strategy right at the beginning uh, unconsciously was to um, get as many close relationships as I could as possible. Right. So um, I desperately tried to get people to like me basically in mm-hmm. whatever way I needed to at that time. So if I, if I met someone who I thought might like me, then I would pretend to be someone that I thought they might like. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I was in a relationship uh, at the time with somebody who uh, he went to Plymouth University and we'd been together for about three years. Um, real like childhood sweethearts, first love, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I totally pushed him away because I felt like I wasn't worthy of being loved and uh, I was horrible to him and not nice to myself as well. And so um, we broke up um, and I and I went from kind of relationship to relationship after that. Um, again, just kind of in hindsight, desperately trying to seek some kind of acceptance, some kind of love and, and care. But of course, as you can probably predict, that didn't really lead to that. Right. Um, in fact, it made things a whole lot worse. So that's that's one of the, the bad coping strategies that right, I would yeah. have used. But actually, I did also do a lot to try and help myself feel better. So I guess those would have been my kind of slip ups, me saying, fuck it, I don't want to feel this way anymore. Mm. I need somebody else to tell me that I'm that I'm great. Yeah. But generally I I joined as many societies as I possibly could. Right. I um again in hindsight that probably just added into that whole please like me thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um yeah I I joined as many societies as I could. I I think I was um, if you had taken a survey of the of how many societies people were in, um, I would have been on the top of that list right. of the most societies that I joined. I made a decision very early on to kind of always say yes to things, always try to go to things, because otherwise what I would do is just stay in my room and think about how awful things were and um, watch movies. Yeah. Equally, I did do that a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I spent a huge majority of my first year, eat, I think I've spoken about this on the podcast, eating chocolate biscuits, yep. um, drinking those like mini bottles of wine that you can get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't want to buy a whole bottle because I thought, <laughs> no, that's not a good idea. <laughs> I'll just buy a little one. Um, and uh, watching, I made like a list of all of the classic old movies that people mm. recommended and I and I went through them gradually. Yeah. Also, wouldn't recommend that. Doctor Zhivago is really <laughs> long and boring, like so long. <laughs> Don't do it to yourself. I got I got through the whole of of a disc, thinking yeah. that was that was all of the film because it was like two and a half hours long. Right. I realised that there was a second disc. There's a second disc. <laughs> Don't watch it. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so I did that. <laughs> 
Um, and I would I'd be up till like 4 a.m. just watching movies and then I would go to sleep and, mm. and not wake up till two, two in the clock in, in the afternoon. So all of all of the classic depressive behavior happened. Yeah. Um, but equally, I was very hard on myself to still do all the things that people said you should do when you go to university mm. because I, I didn't want to be that one person who just had a, a rubbish time at university and blame myself for it entirely yeah yeah, yeah it's um it's funny right because i think as a university student you expect your experience to be like incredibly unique so <clears throat> like i thought i was the only one staying up till four in the morning you know drinking eating snacks and watching movies to get like through it all and obviously yeah. after southampton you made your way back to brighton Am I right in saying that? I did, yeah, sort of. I say I I live in Brighton because that's the place that people know, but I've yeah. always lived outside of Brighton, but yeah, just yeah. spent most of my time there. So I live in, in Burgess Hill now, um, but my family home is in Seaford. Yeah. So I'm assuming that was like a breath of fresh air, getting back and being like, oh, back to where back to where I feel more at peace. So Yeah. Was that something that you that you felt like straight away? You got back and was like, Oh god, I feel a bit more I don't even know what that is, but it was a positive mm. reaction to the to coming back. I cried when I got off the train. Oh, um, uh, coming back. Um, I, I don't think that was the final time I came back, but there was one time that I did. I remember coming back on the train and I stepped off the train at at Brighton, mm-hmm. and I just felt this huge sense of like oh, I'm home again. Yeah. Like real relief. Yeah, I think relief is probably the biggest word for it but actually when I left when I left university did I feel that coming home I think yes and no yes I felt I felt really relieved that it was all over Mm. um I was like wow I got a degree that's amazing I mean given that I wanted to drop out in the first month um that was quite good that I made it through the whole whole of university but I'd gone through so much it felt my life felt so separate Mm. um from the life I'd left behind and as much as I wanted to kind of get back to what I was before who I was before I I still at that point was quite depressed so I I felt like I I was in the mindset of I I can't get back to that point I can't ever feel that way again and also I don't know if this is a normal thing for um for people who are depressed but I I very much felt like people now see me as that person. People see me as a depressed person. Um, And, and so on the days where I was perhaps feeling better, I was acutely aware that people saw that as a difference to usual. So they Mm. noticed it more, which made me feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And then on the days where I was sadder than usual (laughs) or just, you know, my usual self at that point, I noticed that that was also a bad thing because people wanted me to be who I was before. So I felt, I felt quite lost when I came back actually, because I thought, well, as much as university was, was a horrible time for me because I was depressed throughout the whole time. I think nobody really noticed I was depressed because they assumed that was just me. Mm. So I didn't necessarily have to hide it because that they didn't know any differently. Whereas when I went back to, back home and back to my old friends they they knew something was different they knew I was not being myself 
And that's a really difficult thing to manage because you think I want to be open with these people. I want to be myself again, but equally, I don't feel like I can at the moment. Yeah. Um, and, and I'd sort of come to a point where I'd sort of, after three years of being depressed, accepted that that may be who I am now. Mm. I'll come back to that point in a minute, but yeah. remind me. Yeah, we'll do. Um, so I, I've, I had accepted that that's who I was at that point. And so for somebody to question that, somebody to go, you're not being yourself felt really attacking to me. It was, mm. I felt really on the defense. I thought, no, what if this, what if this is who I am and you don't like it, then, you know, I've come back thinking these are the people who love me. Yeah. And if they don't love me for the person I am now, then who am I? Um, so it led to a lot of really dark existential questions mm. um, and really trying to like cut ties with university, but, um, but everybody constantly reminding you of university um, and trying to rebuild a new life, not knowing who you are. Mm. Really, really difficult. Um, so come back to the point of, of yeah. it being who I am. Um, it's it's not yeah. <laughs> who I am. Yeah. Um, and I want to make that clear to anyone else who, who has ever felt that way. Depression is not who you are. Mm. It is not a personality trait. It's not a characteristic. It is an illness. So, and the, the more that you accept that it is a separate part of you that you have to just manage and cope with and overcome, because you can overcome it, the better it is. The more you accept that it's part of you, the deeper it goes, just the more it, it sticks around. Yeah, that's so poignant. And it's, yeah, it's just, it, it couldn't be more nail on the head in terms of the truth of it. I described it as when I thought, when I first was introduced the idea that I was, that I could be depressed. I was in maybe like February or March of my second year at sixth form. And ironically, mm -hmm. psychology teacher said it could be, that's what it could be. And I described it like a car crash. It was this idea of, it was immediate something, you knew something bad had happened. And the immediate thought was, it feels like you'll never be the same again. Yeah. Like it feels so permanent when you're addressed with the reality of it. That, that it's like almost terminal in some ways. Mm. So yeah, that idea of it's not who you are, it's just an illness that you have. That in That distinction is like huge, I feel like. I'm really happy you made that point because it's, yeah, you've you've put it in a, a really beautiful way as well. Well, it's it's really important for people to know that they can recover as well. Mm. Yeah, recovery might not look the same as if you have a broken leg, but it it is possible. You you can overcome depression. Yeah. It's not something that you have to just live with for the rest of your life. Um, and I you know, I get why people see see it that way because, as you said, it feels that way when you have it. Mm. And also. When was the last time somebody got undiagnosed with depression? Right, exactly. <laughs> you don't go back to a doctor and go, I'm fine now. Can you undiagnose me? Yeah. Um, I mean, you might be lucky enough to see a doctor who's really lovely and sees you through the whole thing and then goes, oh, you're no longer depressed. How wonderful. But yeah. most people, including me, get a diagnosis of depression suggested from their GP. They go on antidepressants and then they either carry on the antidepressants or they don't. Yeah. And that's kind of that's kind of it. It's up to them to decide when they're not depressed. Yeah, it's um, and there's no timeline, unlike with a broken leg, which is another thing. No. Yeah, um, a doctor can go, yeah, that's going to be healed in da 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 da. And depression, <laughs> it's like to be determined when that will yeah. be. As you mentioned, like with advertising and 
kind of that mentality when you came back you didn't get straight into psychology work you got into media-based work right yeah how did you um how did you um was that almost like a breath of fresh air after you know this path I'm now I'm thinking about this now you've said it but that you've been tutors have encouraged you to go study something highly academic highly you know you should be going to you know Oxford or Cambridge you should be studying psychology on its own you should be was there was there was there an element of going into media-based work where I'm assuming it was more creatively led rather than like you said logically and academically was there almost like a bit of a oh god this is like a breath of fresh air doing something where I'm encouraged to be more creative more so than anything else Hmm, that's a good question um I didn't really think of it like that I Hmm. thought of it as because throughout the whole of university all of the kind of extracurricular stuff I'd done had been creative so in doing those things I'd always thought about the fact that it added to my CV and it looked good if I wanted to then go into advertising Uh, but equally I hadn't been able to find any work experience in Mm. it at all and I had toyed with the idea of carrying on to do something mental health related and I only thought about doing that after I had suffered depression myself but when (laughs) when I spoke to people about that and they said oh yes you'd have to do a master's and then a PhD Mm. um I was like nope (laughs) nope (laughs) not doing that sorry I'm out of (laughs) here so I was like well I'm definitely not going back to education and um spoiler alert I've said that about three times in my life and gone (laughs) back on that but anyway another story um yeah, I didn't want to do any more education. Yeah. So I just wanted to get I get on with my life. I wanted to move on. Mm. I wanted to um, move forward. I wanted to be more independent. I wanted to earn money, move out, start a life that I would be happy with. Mm. Um, so that was my main drive. My main driver was just sort of to leave that, leave that behind and move forward and yeah. do something um, that I was proud of and, you know, achieve something and make sense out of that time. Yeah. I think now it does make sense a lot, but I was really driven for the experience of going to university to not be a waste of time mm. um, for it to be like, I'm not, I, I didn't go through all of that just to get to the other side and go, I don't need my degree. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and so that was a real big driver for me changing career in the end. But at the time it was also a driver for me to just get a job of any kind. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and it didn't matter what, what degree I was doing I got a 2-1 so they would accept me yeah so my main intention was just to find my feet really mm. um I did still want to get into advertising I carried on doing that it was I was lucky to work where I worked I was lucky to get the job mm. um and I had I got a lot of experience I started in sales okay hated sales yeah right um, <laughs> really <laughs> it really trod a, a fine line between like morality and yeah right <laughs> and something else yeah um, in my head there was a lot of white lying in sales yeah and then uh, it was it was obviously quite clear that I didn't like sales because mm. my boss was like perhaps you should you should move into the editorial team yeah instead. right <laughs> <laughs> which is almost no, quite was... nice because it's like yeah we mm. still really like you it's not you it's just we think maybe this well, part of the job isn't for it was you. a it was a bit of circumstance as well i was i was i was not that good at sales mm. um but also um the the editor of the magazines that they were working on was leaving okay and also because there wasn't a big staff sometimes when i sold 
like a page of advertising alongside a, a piece of writing, I would write the piece. Ah, uh, okay. Um, in, because the editor was so swamped with work. So I yeah. was like, well, I'll do it. That's fine. So sometimes I wrote the content anyway. Mm. And so the editor was leaving and they were like, Jenny, what do you think about being <laughs> editor? So so that's what I did. Massively thrown in the deep end, but yeah. I did I did really like it. I liked writing stuff. I liked being an editor. I didn't like the more journalistic side of it. Sure. But equally, it was it was really just a way of me gaining experience. And then when I realized that despite having two years of experience, essentially editing four magazines for a company and mm. and also doing the PR and sometimes the sales. I was told by all my all the recruiters I talked to that I still didn't have enough experience to get into advertising. Mm. So right. that was kind of the point where I thought, well, am I going to stick out in something that I don't necessarily really want to be doing? Like I wasn't loving it. I didn't get home every night and go, oh, what a good day. Yeah. Um, I didn't feel like I was making a difference. Mm. I didn't feel like I was doing something I was really passionate about which i think in again in hindsight is really important to me to do something that matches my values Mm. so that's that's where the idea came for then doing something different and i thought what what am i passionate about what do i think about on a daily basis but i'm not doing ah mental health yeah (laughs) let's let's see about that yeah how did you um because so the the job title was mental health practitioner right up until earlier this year am i right in saying that yeah yeah it was uh, something called um a graduate mental health practitioner right um because if 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 you say mental health practitioner it's confusing because technically everyone who works in mental health is a mental health yeah, practitioner yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah the um the course that i i signed up up for when i decided that i wanted to go into mental health um was a course at sussex mm. um and it was yeah, a mental health practice, a postgraduate degree. And essentially it was with the aim of training people to become uh, a new role in Sussex Partnership, which was graduate mental health practitioners. And uh, the idea was to fill, fill the gap between um, people coming into services and psychology because there's a long wait for, for people to see a psychologist. Sure. So we were offering kind of low-level psychological interventions to help people to either between coming into services and seeing a psychologist or instead of that yeah. sometimes people would see us and then that would be enough mm. but yeah it was it was meant to fill fill that gap which was something I was also passionate about having been rejected from services myself yeah so um so it felt it felt like a really a really good step in the right direction and I really enjoyed enjoyed the training and yeah that's what I've been that's what I've been doing what I was doing up until January this year yeah for about four years amazing like first year is amazing work and I think another part that resonated with me weren't you working with younger boys and girls with this practice um at first I was yeah, yeah because yeah. um because it was a new role mm-hmm. um there weren't any jobs right <laughs> so um so at first what I did was I I carried on uh, part-time working at the place that I had been in placement with mm-hmm. which was in a, an, a community adult service and then I um, had a part-time job uh, working at a charity that yeah was was working with 16 to 25 year olds wow 
um yeah so there um I haven't worked with I hadn't until beginning of this year worked with anyone younger than that but yeah I started off working with a combination of adults and 16 to 25 year olds how um how did you find that experience early on I loved it um yeah I really liked it because that was again it felt like it really fit with my agenda basically (laughs) what I wanted to to get out of what I was doing because obviously that was the age that I struggled um Mm. so so I I found it really satisfying um to get in there sort of earlier with the 16 year olds um I found it it was it was quite tough to separate myself from the work yeah I think harder than with adults Mm. when I was working with older adults it was not not older adults but you know anyone 25 plus it felt easier to kind of go this is my job and to step away from it Mm. whereas with the 16 17 18 year olds uh, my I was meeting them in coffee shops I was having coffee with them and you know chatting with them I knew about all everything in their life Mm. um I was my title was recovery worker so essentially I just helped them with whatever their goals were Mm. and that could be anything um and uh, and I got to know them really well. And I I ran a couple of groups as well, including a social group. And a lot of the people who, a lot of the young people I supported early on in that job carried on coming to the social group for oh. the next year. Yeah. Um, and they, they all made a really lovely group uh, together as well. And they all made friends and, um, and it was so, so lovely to see, so satisfying and seeing their journey from when I first saw them to then doing really well was was incredibly satisfying. Really, really lovely. Oh, I love it. That's awesome. Now, this question was one that it was just curiosity and it might be a very silly question. I'm just going to preface it by saying that now. When I think of if I was a doctor and my friends, they find out that you do that work and they go, oh, I've got this rash and I've got this thing wrong with me and <laughs> all of these things. Can you check out? Can you check out? Can you check out? Did you ever experience that any of your friendship dynamics changed as you became more kind of comfortable and practiced in your career with, with working with mental health? Did you have people going, oh, I've been feeling really down and that that was like something new or... I guess naturally maybe you were you were inclined to be that supportive way and that maybe led to the job almost. But did any mm-hmm. friendship dynamics change when they kind of saw you more established in the in the role of a mental health graduate mental health practitioner? Uh it's a good question. It's been quite mixed, I think, because actually my my boyfriend and I have a bit of a running joke that whenever we go to a social event mm-hmm we always do like an experiment now based on observations since I started working in mental health (laughs) that, um, that whenever I say what I do for a living, Mm. uh, immediately the conversation goes dead. Really? And yeah, that's it. That's, that's the end of that conversation. Need to just walk away or (laughs) what usually happens is I end up just, we talk about the other person. Yeah. But I, after, after a while I started being a bit confused by this thinking like, why don't people want to talk to me about what I do? Like, I I think what I do is quite interesting. Yeah, I would be. <laughs> I'd have lots of questions if I were someone else. <laughs> so um, so and and what would happen is that 
um, my my boyfriend would get loads of questions. Like people would talk for hours about what he does. He's an ecologist. <laughs> okay. Um, he works with uh, habitats and animals. So I guess it's maybe a bit easier to talk about, but he's get loads of questions. And I'd stand there and I'd be like, why are we talking about your job? My <laughs> job is really interesting. Um, so we we developed a bit of a um, experiment and um, and we started sort of switching up because we thought, oh, well, maybe it's the order we do it. Maybe because you go you go first, yeah. they just want to carry on and then ask me what I do. So how about next time I go first and then and then you go second? Right. And so we've tested it out. No, it's definitely just a mood killer. <laughs> But equally, it's a really good way of knowing who I want to carry on talking to. Yeah. Um, if somebody if somebody listens uh, to what I do for a living and they're like, oh, my God, that's so interesting and ask me questions about it. I'm like, right, you're a good person to know. Yeah. I, that's fine. You can be my friend. Whereas if they if it goes completely silent and they don't know what to do and they get very awkward, I kind of think, oh, well, OK, maybe this relationship isn't going anywhere then. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think it, it has it has changed things socially with random people. Yeah, right. Um, I'm not, I'm not the life and soul of a party. <laughs> not that I ever was really, but definitely not now. And uh, but with friends, I do remember there being a couple of instances early on when I was training where I felt like people were treating me slightly differently. Mm. Um, and I think with with everyone but one person, that's changed now but there was one person who I, I'm not I'm not even particularly friends with with this person anymore and I wasn't even really at the time but we bumped into each other yeah and she was going through something really difficult and she asked to speak to me about it and so yeah. I was like yeah fine yeah so we spoke about it and um I don't even know I can't even remember exactly what I said but I think she finished talking and basically the gist of it was I said that sounds really difficult yeah. and I didn't really have much like to offer in terms of advice because I hadn't been through it so yeah. I just sort of was there to support and um and she and she turned around to me and and very immediately aggressively said don't use that therapy shit on me um wow and that was the end of that conversation yeah, yeah. yeah shock that you're not um, friends anymore <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah shocker <laughs> yeah um so and I remember being very worried after that, that that's how people saw me. Mm. Um, and I, for a long time, didn't know. Because when you're training in in mental health practice in any way, it's it, it's not, you don't come away from the training. It's continual. Yep. You, you, it's, it's training is for you as a whole person. Mm. And it's integrative and it's, and it's personal. Yeah. So... So I don't really have an objective view on on like how I have changed as a person as a result of that. Yeah. But equally, like there's no there's no point in my life where I'm like using therapy shit on anyone when yeah. I'm talking to them. Yeah. Um, but it might be that I, I was I've paranoid for a period of time that maybe I couldn't separate it. Maybe mm. I couldn't separate being not that I was a therapist at the time, but any kind of therapist ish. Yeah. Um with being a friend and that was quite difficult because I, I found myself having to watch what I was saying and almost force myself to be more friendly mm. or more more kind of emotional about things when I'm talking to my friends than I would have been even before because that was then the distinction between me yeah. being this professional and being a friend but my, my absolute worst nightmare is that people do, don't come to me because of my job yeah 
I really, really hope that nobody feels like that. Um, and if they do, I, I genuinely don't think I've done anything to, to make that a thing. No. But yeah, I really hope that's that's not the case. I think that's that you're right. It the way that I was led me to that point anyway. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't developed compassion and and listening skills from doing the training. Yeah. It doesn't train you that well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it takes the skills you have and then tells you how to use it professionally. That's yeah. that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's such an interesting point on being conscious of almost switching it off in some way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But how me and you were introduced was through Untangled the podcast. And yep. firstly, before I get into, you know, your journey with it, cannot stress enough that after listening to this, please go and listen to Untangled. I really, really, really loved finding your podcast and yeah, it's like, you know, when you go, oh, I've, you know, I love the podcast and you've maybe listened to a couple of the episodes or or you've listened to like one. Like I've listened to every Untangled podcast episode and was <laughs> oh, nice. and was like very, very just hooked immediately. Um, and I've spoken about that when I went on there. But what sparked the idea for you and Izzy to come up with the podcast? And also, how did you find recording that pilot episode? Well, I can't take any credit for the idea because it was totally Izzy's idea. <laughs> um, yeah, she came to me. I think it was uh, one of her one of her birthday dinners, actually. And at the end of it, she was like, I've been thinking and I'd really like to do a podcast. And I think I'd really like to do a podcast on mental health. Mm. Um, and I'd I'd like you to do it with me. What do you Aww. think? Um, and I was like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Um, so I, I definitely view myself as I'm, I'm tagging along for the ride. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, so it's, it's very much like I have Izzy to thank for the whole thing. Mm. Um, and, and I do think we make a really good team now and yeah. I'm very invested in it, but yeah, she's, she's the master, she's the mastermind of it all. And the pilot, uh, was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, not gonna lie, it was really scary, uh, and it takes a really long time to get used to talking and not being really hyper aware of every single thing you're saying or doing right. wrong. I think at the end of season one, we only just got to that point of thinking, mm. no, it's okay to make mistakes. And you know, at first we were editing out all of the ums and all of the pauses yeah. and everything, thinking that it needed to sound perfect. But as we went along, we realized that not only did we get better at not having those ums and pauses and just being a bit more confident with what we said is what we say. Yeah. Um, but also I'm now really aware of how many ums I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I said it. Um, <laughs> but also we we were kinder to ourselves about not editing it out. Sure. Um, so when we listened back to it, we would rather than taking out all of the ums and the pauses and the bits that we weren't happy with, we would just, we would leave them in and be a bit kinder to ourselves. And hopefully that's translated to as the se- as the season goes on. Yeah. Feeling a bit more natural. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that's, that's sort of the, the path that we want to be on, that it just feels more and more natural as it goes along and more and more like it actually is, which is just two friends talking. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really interesting. I'm still really that's something I still really struggle with for me I say like a lot so that's one thing that I've had to program in my own head to stop mm. <laughs> and yeah there's nothing 
there's nothing that when it comes to editing that you're hearing it it's like being slapped in the face with every <laughs> single one how have you found because i think naturally with the mental health practitioner role that you've had i'm assuming that there's an element of being guarded maybe with your own emotions because you're trying to help someone with their own but mm. i was wondering how have you found being more open about your personal experience as Jenny around mental health through the podcast, whereas it maybe isn't something that you've practiced through your role? I mean, generally, I found it a really, really positive experience Mm. because not only, as you said, has it kind of allowed me to actually kind of put those two roles together that, yeah, I am a professional, but I also have feelings. Yeah. And I think that's an important lesson for everyone to remember that if they go to therapy or if they see anyone in mental health, that person who you see is very likely to either have experienced mental health difficulties themselves or know someone who they're very close to who who does have those difficulties. I don't think I know anyone in mental health who doesn't have some kind of experience of struggling yeah. um, or knowing someone who struggles. So um, so it's quite freeing in a way. Um, I do want people to know how I feel yeah. and I want people to know that I have struggled. Yeah. And I think because, again, this is just, I think, the type of person I am rather than anything to do with professionalism. But equally, the professional part has made it slightly worse. I'm mm. not I'm not very good at at just oh, just telling people how I feel. Yep. Um, if if somebody asks me how I feel and I think that they're genuinely interested in knowing then I, I'll i tell them like I'm yeah. an open book when someone asks but if someone doesn't ask I won't say it because I guess my assumption is that they don't want to know yeah right <laughs> and I was also I'm also at first definitely I was aware of the idea of you know what happens if somebody I am helping listens to this will that change how they view me will that change whether they trust my mm. opinion or not and I've tried to let go of that because I think, well, actually, the more the more open I can be, the more myself I can be, that shouldn't change um, how helpful I can be to someone else. But also there has been kind of a bad side to, to kind of engaging in all of these conversations and things. I think that there is a point where um, sometimes like all I'll think about is how how much difficult things go on in the world and how how many people suffer with mental health difficulties and and that overwhelms me a little bit because if you if you see something all day every day and then you come away from that and you see it again all day every day it really messes with your perspective really messes with your perception that there are people doing well yeah and that things are okay just like if you if you were to watch I think a lot of people did when people watched the news continually during um, the height of, of the pandemic, you would have got a really warped idea as to how many people were really, really suffering at that point. And it would have, well, it did make a lot of people feel really hopeless. Mm. Um, So I have to be aware of that. I have to be aware that if I start feeling a bit sort of hopeless about things and less motivated, that it's usually because I've, I've lost that perspective. I've lost the balance of, yes there are people really struggling and i can help them and but also life is quite good yeah um yeah i don't know if that really answers your questions no it does it does it really does yeah it was just something i was intrigued by because 
you know, as we've spoken throughout the conversation, there's the element of the practitioner and the human being and making sure that they're two things that are, yeah, that they are almost separated whilst working in sync simultaneously all the time, right? That, you know, you are a practitioner and a human being, but it's important to keep them separate and make sure that you don't lose yourself amongst the work, I guess. So, yeah, you've answered it perfectly. Um, it's a difficult balance. Yeah, I think at first when I was doing the work, I was very careful never to bring myself into the room mm. with a client. Um, but I've I've gotten more lenient with that and actually realised that being more myself is part of the training as well, is bringing yourself into the room because you have to to be genuine. Yeah. And, you know, if I was sitting here like a robot, people wouldn't want to open up to me. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. And also now I'm working from home. People can see my bedroom while I'm talking to them. <laughs> so people know, people know where I live. They know like what's going on behind me. Sometimes I'll get a delivery halfway through sessions. I can't yeah. hide yeah. myself now. So oh, I love it. Um right, Jenny, before we do the final four questions, I would like for you to plug and be shamelessly plug. How can people get more Jenny in their lives, more untangled? Whatever you're comfortable, but plug, plug, plug. Well, I mean, I don't have much to plug apart from Untangled. Yeah. I mean, people really should go have a look at Untangled, the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Um, I'm I'm on Twitter yeah. <laughs> with Untangled. And also personally, sometimes I have some pretty good conversations on there. So Ooh. get involved in those conversations. Anytime I have a thought or a dilemma about something mental health related, I'll put that on Untangle the Podcast on um, on Twitter. So get involved in that. Uh, we launched a website not not too long ago, and that's untanglethepodcast.com. I love it. And that has pretty much all the information that anyone would ever need or want about the podcast and also about myself and Izzy as well. There's a lot of background information about us. Um, so if you want to know more about, about our podcast, our stories then then go there and it's probably the best thing to do and listen to the podcast it's pretty much everywhere yeah um all of the all of the big podcast platforms um and uh we have our own own platform as well so however you listen wherever you listen you can i love it right jenny these are the final four questions and these are questions that i ask everyone and they're kind of largely life-based more so than specific but question number one if i gave you a megaphone and you could share one message with the world what would it be Hmm. Uh, i think it would be something about people not thinking that their way is the right way because i think that's gotten us into a lot of difficulties especially recently but historically generally and it seems to be just a human trait that keeps getting us into into difficulties so i'd say something like there's always more than one perspective there's there's no one correct perspective and the more that we accept that we may have our own perspective but then that may not be right and we're open to exploring other perspectives that the easier a lot of people's lives will be. So yeah, that's my key message. I love it. I love it. Number two, what is a personal struggle that many people may not know about? 
Mm. I mean, this is a difficult one to answer because, you know, if people don't know about it, there's probably a reason <laughs> people don't know about it. Um, I think, I think that people, not many people know how concerned I am about people liking me mm. um, or people seeing me as, um, as competent or able. So if I make a mistake, traditionally I'll think on that for the next six months. Right. Because I, I, I'm very, I'm very aware of not wanting people's opinion of me to change for mm. the bad. Um, and that's something I've really, really worked on over the last sort of four or five years. I've had my own therapy. I've um, done lots of self-help. Um, obviously, during my course, I've had to face up to that as well because clients won't all like me. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I think not many people assume that about me because I, I think I come across quite confidently. Mm. Um, but, uh, but we all have that little demon inside of us that keeps shouting that, we're not good enough and that we're we're not likable and all of that and and my one just is getting a bit quieter but it's still there yeah number three what are three personality traits slash characteristics that you'd say you've built your life upon up to this point Hmm, built my life upon um i think that uh something i've always been really like focused on is the idea of well, two things, fairness mm -hmm. and like not being judgmental and understanding. Mm. Um, and this is, again, there's going to be lots of people who are like, oh, you've been trained in how to be non-judgmental. <laughs> um, but this is uh, all the way through my life. I've always been a real stickler for fairness mm -hmm. and equality. Um, and I remember being very frustrated at school whenever anything happened that I felt was unfair or unjust and I think that's driven a lot of where I am now. Um, it's driven a lot of the things that I'm passionate about. It's driven my career, definitely. And it drives a lot of other behaviours and I think positive behaviours that I do that I, if I see something is unfair, I do something about it. Mm. Um, and then the understanding and, and non-judgmentalness is, uh, that's been obviously really helpful in in everything I do. But again, I always value anybody kind of understanding me without any judgments and things so I always want to give that back to other people mm. and I think honesty as well oh. I'm a very honest person sometimes to my detriment <laughs> um, I was always known in my family as the one who would always tell it how it is even if it wasn't that nice <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah so um I think that's I think that's the only reason my sister brought uh, brought me with her when she went wedding dress shopping um, <laughs> because she knew that if she tried on a dress that wasn't nice I would say it <laughs> yeah right <laughs> um, and I did I did there were times where she tried on dresses I was like mm, that doesn't really suit you <laughs> and I'm, my mum would be like oh, you can't say that and I'm like well I can because I don't want her going down the the aisle with a dress that doesn't suit her <laughs> yeah you just sitting there with like a real straight face like mm, I didn't like this dress yeah, and and I I do that. Unfortunately, I'm I'm a I'm a realist. Um, yeah. I don't I don't buy into like, oh well, you know, this is how it is. It might yeah. might work out for the best. And I'm like, no, be honest about it. It's not working out. Just <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> Final question, and one question that I love asking people. Many years into the future, your time as Jenny Arda is coming to an end. The person closest to you can only describe you and your time here on earth in one sentence. What would you hope that would be? 
Mm. Oh, it's a really tough question. Um, I, I'd like to think that people would notice the effort that I put in to do what's right. I think that, you know, it may not work out sometimes and I know I've hurt people and um, as everyone has over their their life, but but I'd like to think that, you know, if, if my time was coming to an end that people would look back and they'd say, she always tried to do what, what was right mm. in the most generous and compassionate way possible given the circumstances or given, you know, what was going on for her at the time. And I'd like to think that that was what was acknowledged rather than any mistakes I did make that went against how someone might see me or or uh, how I want to be seen. So yeah, she she always wanted to do what was right with the information that she had at the time. I love it. That's such a lovely answer. So for, so thank you for your time. I've I've really enjoyed this conversation yeah like, thank you so much it's been absolutely amazing questions and you're such a a lovely host <laughs> oh thank you well coming from a lovely host that does mean a phenomenal amount <laughs> but um yeah please people I, I just once again cannot stress this enough please go and listen to untangled i absolutely love just what you guys have built and yeah i thank you once again i, I I've just really loved this conversation is the long way round of what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, I've, I've loved this conversation too. And thank you so much for having me on. It's a real privilege. Thank you. Well, guys, until next time, let's say goodbye. Bye, everyone.